0: This is Crane's Daily Gist. I'm Amy Guth. On this episode of the podcast, Governor Pritzker says as health numbers improve, he plans to ease rules for outside activities, including dining, as soon as May 29th throughout the state. Mayor Lightfoot, however, says don't expect restaurants to be open quite so soon. More on that story and others coming up today on the podcast, but first, this word from our sponsor. Your health and well-being are top of mind right now, and that includes your financial security. Wintrust Mortgage can help. They provide refinance solutions so you can take advantage of low rates to reduce payments, and they have the sophisticated technology to let you go through the process conveniently from home. Uncertainty can add stress to an already tense time. Rely on Wintrust Mortgage. Visit WintrustMortgage.com slash refi. Wintrust Mortgage is a division of Barrington Bank and Trust Company N.A and MLS number 449042, equal housing lender. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com slash SBL. So the conversation you're about to hear is from a live video stream. And anything can happen, we're at the mercy of Cats and Internet Connections live stream more specifically that was recorded earlier today and it's been lightly edited for clarity. You can find the video from that archived on Crane's Facebook page, but here's the conversation. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another live edition of Crane's Daily Gist, coming to you from our respective living rooms. Thanks to everybody who's tuning in on Facebook or LinkedIn, and special thanks to our sponsor, Trust, who makes all of this possible. We certainly appreciate you. All right, so it is time for our weekly check-in with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. And welcome, Dennis. There is a lot of stuff to get to today. So let us start with, there is a story that you wrote about how the COVID crisis makes 28% of Cook County households vulnerable to housing loss. Tell us about that if you would.
1: This is a study from, it's actually a pair of studies from the Institute of Housing Studies at DePaul. A couple of weeks ago, they came out with a rental study of people who rent, I apologize. And then yesterday they came out with one on homeowners. I got trapped there in my own uh, mouth. But uh, when you combine the two, you find that combining their report on homeowners who are vulnerable and renters who are vulnerable to home loss, It's 28% of all households in Cook County. And by vulnerable, what they mean is not these are people who are about to give up their home. These are people where, or these are households where at least one earner is in an occupation that is part of the job loss wave. That is job, they have jobs that you can't do at home. They're janitors, they're construction workers, that sort of thing. And so they've gone through the census records and determined that 28% of households have one of those earners. And one of the interesting things is, so they looked at renters first a couple of weeks ago, and then homeowners just yesterday is when the the latest data came out. But we found that the two are almost completely reversed. The large concentration of renters who are vulnerable is in the city, and the large concentration of homeowners who are vulnerable is in the suburbs, particularly the south and southwest suburbs. Again, this is only Cook County. And that tracks our housing profile. We are more a renter city, especially on the south and west sides, where they found many vulnerable households, and there's more home ownership in the suburbs.
0: So that shakes out about how you would have predicted then.
1: Yeah, right. One of the things that tells us is that they're barking up the right tree. They're finding that people who are threatened, who are vulnerable to, they're very careful about their phrasing because they don't want to say, these are people who are going to give up their homes. These are people who are about to be evicted. It's just looking for where the trouble spots might arise, if especially if our economic troubles go on for a long time. There are supports now for both renters and and homeowners Financial supports, but if those expire and I tap into my savings and I start to think, I, you know, I don't have a source anymore, then I may be on the verge of losing my house. So they're a home. They're really looking at who's vulnerable to having that happen somewhere in the near term.
0: Well, we will keep looking to you for the latest on that as we move forward through this crisis, of course. Uh, I want to shift to a story. This is something you and I have talked quite a bit about, and that is the laws and zoning ordinances concerning um, like carriage houses. And I think you call them granny flats. What is the latest there? That I understand you have an update for me.
1: Yes. Yesterday, A.D. Quig was at city council when the mayor introduced an ordinance that would allow granny flats, accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, coach houses in the city for the first time since 1957. A lot of people don't realize that. There are, of course, coach houses and ADUs in the city, um, but they, for the most part, predate 1957. They're grandfathered It's a granny flat that's grandfathered in. And uh, they have been banned, not only in Chicago, but in many cities since the middle of the the 20th century. It had to do with slum clearance. It had to do with de-densifying neighborhoods. It had to do with control over parking and everything else. And there was also a racial element that led to most cities, including Chicago, banning ADUs. And as you and I have discussed, it's been on a comeback in the last few years as an affordable housing solution. So yesterday, for the first time since 1957, it begins to look as if we're going to have those again in Chicago. And uh, we also know, you and I have discussed this, there are suburbs going this way. Uh, Of course, Chicago being the biggest municipality in the region, it both leads and brings in the biggest numbers. And um, let's go back to a minute to what they're called. I think you know what I like to call them. I prefer to call them Fonzie Flats. That's right. uh, Because I'm an old- (laughs) Oh, man. Because I watched Happy Days. And um, there are actually a couple of reports out there that refer to the category as Fonzie Flats. Because if you watched Happy Days, you know that Fonzie lived over the Cunningham's garage. That takes place in the 1950s. And here we are 60 or more years later looking at bringing it back.
0: Dennis, you and I have been talking for more than a year regularly on this podcast. And I think we've probably mentioned Fonzie easily six or seven times. (laughs) Easily. He comes up a lot on this podcast.
1: Where I didn't watch Happy Days all that much.
0: He's the mascot of the Cranes Daily Gist, I suppose. So this is a story, though, that we've been talking about for a while. It seems like it took quite a while to get to this point. What's the timeline from here?
1: Uh, well, we don't really know. Of course, everything's going at a, on a different schedule because we're in the middle of this crisis. But uh, it looks as if within the next year, we could start seeing the construction of ADUs. Um, one of the interesting things is that, well, two of the interesting things. One is it, they're limited to 700 square feet, which is essentially a small one-bedroom apartment. The other one is, and I think this is a good thing for people to keep in mind, you will be prohibited from putting an ADU on Airbnb or any other short-term rental service. So, people People who live in a single family home neighborhood where there are backyards and especially, you know, the alley garages and you imagine people building an ADU above the garage um, shouldn't be thinking, oh, great. So now I'm going to have Airbnb partiers hanging out over the garage of the neighbors. It would be a long term rental. It would only be a long term rental.
0: Interesting to note, and I think an important one because I'm sure a lot of people thought about that as as soon as that uh, that news came out. Okay, so shifting again, I want to talk about home sales. The sales plunged, but the prices have not done so. Tell me about that.
1: I haven't done so. Yeah. Well, so we knew, we we assumed, we expected that home sales would drop in April, even though most of those sales, probably all of those sales were negotiated and contracts let in February or March before the crisis happened. There were cancellations, either because I lost my job or because I didn't, I had COVID-19 or because I didn't know how to do the closing. I was afraid to do the closing. We've talked about how those were sanitized, but there were a lot of contracts canceled sales home sales dropped by about 17 i'm sorry by about 16 around the region and it's 17 percent nationally so we actually did a little bit better than nationwide and that was expected but what we also saw is that prices went up they were up in the six percent range in the city and in the nine percent range in the larger region I just got those backward. It's actually 9% in the city and 6% in the region. And those were nice, big increases. One of the caveats there is that, again, most of these contracts would have been put together before the crisis happened. So you and I agreed to the price I was going to pay to buy your house before there was any kind of fear involved, any kind of crisis involved. Down the line, people who've been negotiating in later March or in April, May, they may have negotiated lower prices. We don't know. We won't have any of that data for another month. But for now prices uh, rose pretty strongly. It was the second, in both the city and the suburbs, it was the second highest increase going back a couple of years. Second, I have a monthly year-over-year increase going back a couple of years, which goes back to something you and I have discussed several times since the crisis began. The year started, January, February, early March, as a real run-up into a very strong real estate season. Home sales were rising, prices were rising. It looked like we might finally come out of that funk that our market has been in, and then the crisis hit, and it looks as if we're going back into the funk.
0: So do you have a sense, though, because we talked about said funk for such a long time of why Chicago was kind of doing things differently and seemed to be kind of playing by a different set of rules. And we talked about the many, many factors that led to that, why our numbers were generally different than the national numbers. But what shifted there at the end of the year that started that uptick for us?
1: Well, a couple of things that don't have much to do with our region. One is interest rates came down again to the lowest they've been in in many people's lifetime. Another is the economy was just zooming all over the country. And then I think it was also sort of a feeling that people needed to buy before they wanted to buy in early 2019. I'm sorry, in early 2020, because eventually summer and the presidential election season kick in. So let me get it done. So I don't think anything was specific to Chicago. It's just that we were finally getting the recovery that other cities had gotten.
0: Interesting. So another thing that we have talked a lot, a lot about is Bronzeville and how this area has seen this really incredible boom with some really, really highly priced real estate and a lot of moves there, a lot of development. And it seems like that, that boom is continuing. It's continuing to fare pretty
1: well. And it gets boomier all the time. So it's about a year ago that we last did the story on who's building all these houses in these homes, houses and condos in Bronzeville. And at that time, there had been 40 sales in Bronzeville at $500,000 or more. That was up from the previous 12 months. So in the 12 months since we reported there had been 40, there have now been 67. A lot of those are the projects that were in the pipeline when we did the story last year. They were some of the, the builders I featured at that time have now sold either sold out or sold many of their units. And the thing that's amazing is that the demand seems to keep going. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID-19. We do know that a couple of builders seem to have sort of put a slight pause on when they start building, though, and we won't yet know whether that's a permanent halt to building or a long-term pause or a short-term pause because we really don't know what's going to happen. But setting aside COVID-19, which would affect the entire region, wouldn't seem to have any specific effect on Bronzeville, this boom just keeps on going. It's not only $500,000 houses or $500,000 and up houses. That's kind of a a benchmark we've been using going back a few years to describe sort of a higher-end market that's developing in Bronzeville, a historical area, a beautiful area, but not a place that people thought there would be $500,000 homes selling in these numbers. So we've been going by that, but there's also, I mean, there's a boom in, $250,000 $250,000 and $300,000 condos and some single-family homes. There's now even, there have been so many sales of homes at 500000 up to about eight hundred. The cap so far is about $780,000. Um, there have been so many of those sold that there is now sort of an alternative being pitched. Here, you can get a single-family home in Bronzeville for less than $400,000, new construction. If you want to get in on all that action in Bronzeville, but you can't afford a half a million dollars, we've got something for you. And that's sort of a sign that the places really going crazy when you bring in this lower cost alternative
0: and what are the lower cost alternatives how is that happening
1: they're just smaller. Uh, You you still get, uh, it's a project called Trey Lots, and they're building about a 1,400 square foot house, as opposed to what a lot of these are, including these on the screen, um, is about 2,800 to 3,200 square feet or bigger. These are about half that size, still on a full lot. It's a little bit like a historic Chicago bungalow in that you could expand later. It doesn't look anything like a bungalow. It looks like new contemporary housing. Uh, But the idea here is, here's a way for you to get in.
0: And it feels relatively quickly how how this neighborhood kind of started this boom and interesting that it continues.
1: Well, you know, I think the opposite of that Shakespearean phrase, quick, quick, slow, this was sort of like slow, slow, quick. Yeah. Bronzeville was trying really hard to come back when a lot of the public housing was torn down, when we started to really redevelop the city. There were a lot of different reasons that Bronzeville would start to redevelop. And it started very slowly. It tried real hard in the last building boom and then fell apart. A lot of that was speculation related to the Olympics that Chicago didn't get because it would have, a lot of that would have been in Washington Park. So building in Bronzeville right nearby would have been a great idea. It's been building for a long time, but now I think what it's gotten is enough there's enough that has happened in the neighborhood that I'm no longer going to doubt it. If you buy in the neighborhood, I'm not going to say really? That's right out on the edge. I'm going to say, oh, wow, you're in Bronzeville. I wish I could get
0: there. Mm. And Bronzeville is such a has so many interesting historic structures there, too. Is it a mix of renovation of those and new construction, or is it a you know one or the other more weighted?
1: Yeah, these $500,000 and up sales are a mix. It's mostly new construction, but it also includes quite a bit of renovation of some of the historic structures, which I think is a wonderful thing, because if you walk those streets, you see some of the housing that has been preserved, in some cases just preserved by neglect, but in others preserved intentionally uh, from the late 19th century and early 20th century. I mean, it's some of the prettiest blocks you will find in the city, but gap-toothed with these empty lots that developed over the decades of disinvestment. And one of the things I like is that most of the builders who build new in Bronzeville try to be complementary to what's there. They try to sort of respect this historic character. They're not building identical to it, but they're not going so crazy with contemporary that you think, oh, wow, I, you know, it's 180 degrees from what's already there.
0: Give it time. I feel like that happens in every neighborhood. <laughs> Give it time. There'll be That's some creative art project of a house sooner or later, and we'll talk all about it. Okay.
1: Right, so- I've got it. it looks crazy. I, the cat just walked in and I'm, I'm trying to keep from my nose running on camera i apologize
0: my favorite thing is animals that animals and children that that yeah. just join zoom calls now that's my favorite thing it, No way i
1: could hide it so i might as well say it. it's not that i'm as, reaching over to get it's
0: <laughs> the it's the era of realness that's what we're doing now and and animals and kids join zoom calls and in my case there's construction on the building next door and hammering it, it's it's realness it's happening okay so speaking of houses i want to talk about some specific ones two in particular one in wicker park that you wrote about just it looks like a museum almost. This is a really, really beautiful house. Tell me about that.
1: It's a great idea. So speaking of those historical structures in Bronzeville, this is a a real um, Chicago classic. It's a limestone and brick house like you see on So many blocks around Chicago, but the couple who bought it, who were from Australia, bought it in the late 90s, did a massive renovation of the interior. And one of the cool things they did to respect the history in this picture we're looking at, we see bookshelves flanking the bookcase. They, when they moved in decades before they moved in, somebody had bricked over old windows, and they only found this out when they were ripping away the wallboard and they found these window niches and created bookcases, which it's a small detail or it's a single detail, but it talks, it really talks about what they did with this house. They did. Terrific things! It's got this beautiful uh, staircase that they retained, even though everything is white and crisp and that and contemporary in the house. They've got this great old wood staircase that sweeps down from the second floor. They've done it done a few touches like that that really combine old and new nicely. And as you saw from the photos, they really combined the indoors and the outdoors well.
0: Indeed. All right. The other house I want to talk about is a house that that you wrote about recently, and that is in Lincoln Park, a very old, beautiful place. Tell me about that.
1: Pretty remarkable. It was built in the 1890s. And then in the early 2000s, by the early 2000s, it had been chopped up into apartments. I'm not sure how many. We know that it was at least six apartments in the mansion and the coach house out back. So a couple bought it in 2004. They turned it back into a single home. Both the coach house and the mansion are sort of the single home. They they really brought it. I mean, look at that. Look at that redstone facade. It's an amazing house. And inside, they kept a lot of the historical features, the sta- this really remarkable staircase and other things. But they also added onto to it dramatically. There's a big window framed extension of the back where they, you know, you have sort of this huge family room that they wouldn't have had when the house was built. And they spent a total of about $11 million.
0: And such is life right now. A funky internet connection thwarted us just a few seconds after Dennis said that. So head to chicagobusiness.com to see this house that we were talking about and for photos of all the stories we talked about today. But the gist on this one story, since I wouldn't want to leave you hanging, is that this six-bedroom more than 10,000 square foot 19th century mansion in Lincoln Park sold for $4.5 which is about 40% of what the seller had invested to both buy and rehab it. Meet us on Facebook or LinkedIn again next week, Thursday at 11 a.m. Central, where Dennis Rodkin and I will be talking about all the residential real estate news of the week. And hopefully next week, internet won't try to throw us off our game. Coming up, Cook County passes COVID property tax relief, but will deferring payments hurt towns that rely on this revenue stream? We'll dig deeper into that story and others right after this. For a daily roundup of stories about how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting business and the economy, sign up for our free newsletter at chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update. All one word. The paywall has been dropped for all coronavirus stories at chicagobusiness.com, but we do encourage you to consider subscribing to support our journalism. And if you receive cranes in print at the office and are missing it while working from home, you can always access the electronic edition anytime at chicagobusiness.com dot com slash digital edition. Again, that's chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update for the free newsletter and chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. So you don't miss a thing from the print edition while you're working from home. Looking to today's stories, Governor Pritzker announced yesterday he plans to loosen his stay home order to allow more outside activities, including visiting outdoor restaurants and bars, when the entire state of Illinois moves into phase three of its recovery plan, which is expected to happen next week. Under the new plan, restaurants will be able to serve patrons outside if they follow capacity and social distancing rules. Indoor and outdoor tennis courts can reopen, and small group athletic activities of up to 10 people will be permitted as long as participants wear face masks or stay at least six feet away from each other. However, earlier today at her COVID press briefing, Mayor Lightfoot put the brakes on the idea that Chicago restaurants might open on May 29th, though the state overall may be moving into the next phase of reopening. Lightfoot said May 29th is, quote, not a magic date. She continued, May 29th is the expiration date of the state stay-at-home order. As everyone surely knows, the city of Chicago has its own obligations and responsibilities to craft public health policies that are specific to the city of Chicago. The mayor added that she was, quote, heartened by the governor's announcement this week about restaurants and said the city is still developing solutions for restaurants locally. Mayor Lightfoot said she's worried about a spike and surge of cases upon reopening like in other parts of the country. She also said that draft guidelines are still in the works and she'd have more announcements on the city's phase three guidelines tomorrow, saying, I don't think we're going to be ready by May 29th, but my hope is that soon in June that we will be ready. Continuing, I'm the mayor of Chicago and what I have to do is look out for residents here. When asked about the mayor's comments, Governor Pritzker didn't criticize her decision, saying it's her call. He said at his daily COVID briefing today, the decision by a mayor like Chicago to not have outside seating is completely up to them. Ford temporarily closed two critical factories three separate times over the span of two days due to suspected COVID-19 cases. According to a company spokesperson, Ford halted production at its Chicago Explorer SUV plant yesterday when a worker at a nearby supplier facility tested positive for the virus, causing a parts shortage. And that came after the automaker was forced to halt operations at the factory for several hours on Tuesday after two of its own workers tested positive. Ford also stopped building F-150 pick pickup trucks, its biggest moneymaker, at its factory in Dearborn, Michigan, when a separate worker tested positive. The company's working through the kinks of resuming output at its North American factories this week after idling them for two months to slow the spread of the virus. In each case, Ford said it conducted a deep cleaning of the affected employees' work area and sent anyone who came in close contact with them home to quarantine for two weeks. Ford requires that all workers wear masks. It's outfitted them with watches that buzz when they get to too close to one another, and they use thermal cameras to check temperatures as workers arrive for their shifts. But according to the company spokesperson, the temperature checks didn't catch the workers who tested positive inside the plant, saying details on how that happened were unclear. Ford has publicly released a 64-page return-to-work playbook that you can find online and read for yourself, and it's filled with safety measures that it says it's put to work to protect workers' health. The company also asked President Trump to wear a mask when he tours a Ford factory in Michigan later today day. Yesterday, Meal Kit Delivery Service Home Chef announced a data breach two weeks after reports that its customer information was for sale on the dark web. Home Chef, which was acquired by Kroger in 2018, said it was notifying customers of the breach but didn't say how many customers were involved. In a statement, the company said the customer email addresses, names, and phone numbers, as well as the last four digits of credit cards, were affected. The breach also included encrypted passwords and access may have been gained to mailing addresses and information on the frequency of Home Chef delivery that according to the company. A little more background. On May 9th, Infosec and technology site Bleeping Computer reported that 8 million Home Chef customer records were being offered for sale on the dark web. The records were available for purchase for $2,500. Home Chef said they don't store complete credit or debit card information nor maintain passwords in plain text. In one final story for today, the Cook County Board approved some relief for property taxpayers today, agreeing to waive late payment interest penalties for two months. Okay, so bills are still due on August 3rd, but now they can be paid as late as October 1st without running up late charges. The change, negotiated over several weeks between county leaders and designed to ease the economic worries brought on by the coronavirus pandemic, involves billions of dollars of second installment property tax bills. Officials said they expect many, and perhaps most, payments would still be made on time since many homeowners pay monthly into escrow accounts held by their mortgage companies. But some public testimony suggested late payments would put municipalities and small governing bodies at risk. An attorney who represents several small municipalities wrote to commissioners, quote, because of the lag time between collection and distribution of tax monies to local governments, real estate taxes collected in October will not reach the cities, villages, and other taxing bodies until November or December. He continued by writing that without sales tax, to get them through what he called lean summer months, municipalities will struggle to provide essential services like police, fire, ambulance, public works, and other types of daily public aid. But despite the argument, the delay passed, as did a slew of COVID-related measures, including the extension of the county's disaster declaration through September 30th of this year. The Cook County Board has not met as frequently or quite in the same way since the COVID crisis began. Board President Tony Preckwinkle has instead briefed commissioners in groups of four, during during lengthy sunday night calls and has made hospital and finance officials available for questions from commissioners directly Until next week, that's all for Crane's Daily Gist. Special thanks to producer Haima Black, as well as to today's guest, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories most on your mind. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next week.